You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Gerald Sitzer once said that involvement in the world has its place, for God calls us to serve him in the world. But, he says, we need distance and quiet too, or the busyness and noise and demands and pressures of the world will consume us. Isn't it ironic that just a matter of months ago, we were just, for many of us, overwhelmed by all the demands and all the things that we had going on and our schedules just so busy and just out of control. And now, for many of us, we're fighting boredom on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe it's what we need. Lent is a season to willingly enter into the wilderness with Jesus, a place the Gospels tell us that Jesus went often, the desolate place, away from the, the comforts of quote-unquote normal life, and into the discomfort of obscurity and aloneness in preparation to emerge with power. The, the wilderness is almost always in Scripture seen as the staging ground before the powerful work of God in a person or a people. And well, here we are. We have all found ourselves here probably more unintentionally than anything. Many of us have been sort of thrust into this place and now due to some of the social restrictions that have been implemented in order to slow the spread of COVID-19, we're experiencing that discomfort of obscurity and disconnect and aloneness. I read uh, from someone recently, they said, honestly, I hadn't planned on giving up this much for Lent. Honestly, none of us had. Who could have planned for something like this? But what I want us to note is that the unexpectedness that we're experiencing is very much a part of following Jesus. And really, that unexpectedness is at the heart of Palm Sunday. As we see Jesus ushers in the unexpected, he disrupts the normal and he stirs things up. The passage I want us to look at is found in Matthew's Gospel, verse 21. Starting in verse 1, it says this, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Pause. I want in on that deal. All right. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, quote, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the uh, full of a beast of burden. Verse 6, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him 
and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what I want us to do is look at this passage and look specifically at three statements that give us a little bit greater clarity as to what is occurring on this famous Palm Sunday event. The three statements are these. Behold your king, Hosanna in the highest, and then finally, who is this? First, behold your king. Now, what we see here is that Jesus is emerging from the wilderness and into the city. And what it reminds us is that that there are times to reemerge out of and from the desolate place. In other words, the wilderness isn't forever. Can I get a delayed and digital amen? All right, that still works. Okay, good. Jesus has been ministering throughout Galilee and Capernaum and these sort of more obscure outlying towns. But this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that it's recorded that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Now, isn't that interesting? Years of ministry and obscurity, and now Jesus enters into the, quote, big city during his final week. Now, before this moment in his ministry, He would often tell people, you know, don't tell anyone about what you just saw. You'd heal someone or, or, you know, cast out a demon. And he'd be like, let's just keep that one between us. Let's let's just keep that one under wraps. And inevitably, they would go and tell all their friends and the word would would get out. But he's telling people often, you know, let's not talk about that for now. That is until this point. This is a very distinct turning point in the ministry of Jesus where Now Jesus is going public after years of ministry in obscurity. In other words, this is the long-awaited royal unveiling. But what we notice almost immediately is that this is not the sort of unveiling that you would ever expect. Now imagine this scene with me, right? The people are cheering, they're shouting, they're waving palm branches. This was a tradition reserved for a victory march. Um, they're gathered at what is known as the Golden Gate. It's the kind of place that you would expect a conquering king to enter into the city. And so they're shouting and they're cheering and, and you can imagine just people saying like, here he comes and they're, and they're standing on their tiptoes and they're, they're turning their heads, looking around the waving hands and the palm branches in order to get a glimpse of this coming king. And the closer they look, the, the, you know, the people begin to say, wait, I, I think I see them. I think I see them emerging and they, and they look closely and what, they, what do they see? Twelve no-name disciples and a humble, homeless Carpenter on a donkey. I can only imagine they begin to think, wait, is this is him? Like this is what all the fuss is about? This is re- like this is who we've been waiting for? Behold your king, really? Now this scene is known as the triumphal entry, but there really is nothing triumphant about this scene. He's not on a war horse, he is on a donkey, and that would have historically and biblically been a, a symbol of not war, but peacetime. I come 
in peace. There's no crown uh, or any sort of sign of regal dignity, no trumpets or anything like that, or red carpet. The appearance of Jesus is that of weakness and humility, just as it had been prophesied hundreds of years before by the prophet Zechariah. And so the question that we have as we look back at this from our vantage point, hindsight is always 2020. We have the rest of this story. But we begin to ask questions like this. Why, why couldn't they figure out what was going on here? Why, why couldn't they see who this really was? Why couldn't they tell that this was, you know, the long-awaited Messiah King, God's beloved son that comes to liberate his people and bring lasting peace in his kingdom? Why don't they get it? Now, admittedly, this is a very difficult scene to discern. In fact, his appearance, it says, sends the city into this frenzy. It says it stirs the city. The word means an earthquake. It sends this sort of social earthquake, leaving the crowds asking, who is this? There's, there's more confusion than clarity at this very moment. And I think, if I may, part of the breakdown is this. It's that they have greeted Jesus from within the city. Now think about it. They've heard the rumors of Jesus. They've heard the rumors of his miracles, probably the most uh, relevant rumor they've heard more, more recently at this moment was that he raised someone from the dead after they were like, dead, dead. But by and large, all they have gotten is sort of the highlight reels of Jesus's ministry. They've missed the rest of his life and his ministry. They've, they've missed the, the storms and the, the demonic encounters and rejection from his family and sleepless nights and hungry days and these sort of things. And so what I can gather here is it, it's only those who have been formed with Jesus and by Jesus in the difficulty and the suffering of the wilderness who are then able to discern what true triumph looks like when it finally comes. Those who've been formed in the wilderness with Jesus. Now to illustrate, this is sort of like many animals who are born into captivity today that lack experience in the wild, that lack that upbringing and that formation that occurs in the wild. And likewise, the faith of these crowds hasn't been formed in the wild. They believe that when the, the, you know, think they, when the master enters in, that he comes to bring what they want, when they want it, but there is very little to no consideration to the cost that's involved, the fight that was involved, what it cost to bring that thing, ultimately what the journey looked like for Jesus up to this point, and no one could imagine what the journey would continue to look like for Jesus ultimately leading up to the cross on Friday. And what I want us to consider is that in a lot of ways, this crowd that we're reading about here in Matthew 21 is us. Just a moment of honest reflection. We want the triumph without the wrestle. We want the parade in the city without the conflict in the wilderness. Listen to how one put, person put it. My, my secret is that I want my desires fulfilled and my pain minimized. I want to be transformed into, the, transformed into the image of Christ 
by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as it is, and as well, rather, in heaven. I want a God I can control. You see, Palm Sunday confronts us and confronts these secrets of our hearts. Behold your, your king. Behold the king who, who doesn't match your expectations. Behold your king that doesn't fit neatly into your, your little tidy categories. Behold your king that sometimes leaves you with more questions than he does clarity. And ultimately the one who triumphs through suffering and reigns from a cross. And then above that calls us to follow him by picking up our cross and joining him on the Via Della Rosa, the path to Golgotha. Behold, the king you did not expect, but ultimately the king that you need. Secondly, let's look at this statement, Hosanna in the highest. Not only does the appearance of Jesus not match the expectations of the people, but his timing seems to be an issue as well. Now remember that by and large, at this time, the expectation of the people was that when the Messiah appeared, whoever it was going to be, he was going to usher in a political revolution, especially at this time. They believed that when he arrived, he was going to overturn the Roman occupation and oppression that was present in Israel at the time, and ultimately he would sort of reestablish the royal throne and the royal lineage of King David. This scene uh, seems to be showing us that the people are interpreting Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as sort of immediate freedom. In fact, one commentator pointed out that the waving of the palm branches represents the people's expectation of imminent liberation. It's go time, the Messiah is here, and it's going down. In fact, listen to the shouts, because the shouts are very telling. Verse 9 And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, we throw that term out. We sing that that term. In fact, it is a very popular uh, word on Palm Sunday, Hosanna. But what does it mean? Well, Hosanna is sort of a... A compound word, and it merges two words, and it, what it means is save now, or save immediately. This isn't just a shout, Jesus, help us, Jesus, do something. It's Jesus, help us right now. Right now would be very nice. Thank you very much, Jesus. But then not only this, not only are they crying out, Hosanna, save now, but it's Hosanna in the highest. What does that mean? It means Utilize heaven's best resources. Give us the best you've got. Save now and, and essentially with everything that you've got, pull out all the stops and come through for us. Does that sound familiar? No, we would never, we would never pray like that. In our moments of crisis, what do we do? Help me now, God. Give me protection now. Give me provision now. Give me what I need right now. 
A lot of us lately have just been praying, God, give me back my normal life right now. Some of us parents are like, get my kids back into school right now. Now, God. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I wear a watch every day. In fact, I've a couple times left the house, looked down, realized I didn't have my watch on, and I head back home to get it because I, I can't function without it. It's a habit that allows me to sort of navigate life when, when life is normal, whatever that looks like anymore. Kids, schools, uh, work, uh, sports, gatherings, meetings, those, those sort of things. But over the last few weeks during the, this season of self-quarantine, I found myself wearing my watch less and less. In fact, I don't have it on today. And, and I'm finding that I don't really need to wear it as much. And, and what I think this illustrates for me at least, is that the wilderness is where we are forced to reevaluate our concept of time and timing. It's where priorities begin to shift, where busyness and hurry is like forced to slow down. And it's where we realize that the things that we believed were so, so, so urgent maybe aren't that urgent. And it's hopefully the place that we, where we begin to get a, a, a fresh sense that we are not in control of how and specifically when God works. Now, there's this scene from the beginning of The Lord of the Rings where Frodo hears that uh, you know, Gandalf the Great is coming, and so he's running through the forest to get to him, and he stands there, and he says, You're late. You know, Gandalf looks at him, and the, you know, the famous... He says, you know, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he intends to. And then they have a good chuckle. And here's the point. Just because God, you know, doesn't get on our timetable doesn't mean that God has lost track of time. In other words, God hasn't stopped wearing his watch. God is still in control, and God is still in control of the timetables. There's a unique little mention in the book of Galatians. In fact, it's something that it's easy to overlook, and it's found in Galatians chapter 4. And it says this, speaking of the work of Jesus. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But when the fullness of time had come, in other words, when the time was just right, at that distinct moment, God sends his son in order for us to be received as sons into the family and sons and daughters into the family of God. Now think about that. This ancient promise of a deliverer that goes all the way back to Abraham and arguably all the way back to the Garden of Eden that someone would come and overcome evil on behalf of humanity that seemed like it would never come. The fulfillment of that promise would never come generation after generation and hundreds of hundreds of years but then when the time was just right, not a moment too early, not a moment too late, God sends his son. Takes on flesh, comes, lives the life that we couldn't live, dies the death that we deserve, and on the third day, rises from the grave. And yet, five days, five days is 
all that it takes for people to go from shouting, Hosanna, save now, on Sunday, to crucify him on Friday. And this is a remarkable lesson about how unmet and unreasonable expectations on God's timing can turn sour very quickly. But it's also an opportunity for us to be grateful that this, for the season that we're in right now because whether we like it or not, God is lovingly building into us patience. This is the work that I, I clearly see God doing in my life. He's, he's, he's working into me patience. I'm learning, to, I'm learning what, what his timetable is rather than my own. And my wilderness season really has been about God reworking my understanding of time. And one of the areas that it's found specifically for me is in prayer, where I'm learning that prayer is not about getting God on my agenda. Prayer is about God getting me on his agenda, aligning me with his timing and his will. Let's look finally at this final statement. Who is this? Verse 10 When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Now, one of my favorite things about the Gospels is how often we see this specific question. Who is this? When the disciples are freaking out, they're losing their minds on on the boat, on the sea, and there's this raging storm. And then Jesus stands up and he says, peace, be still. And and the storm calms. The, The disciples ask that same question. Who is this? When Jesus is going around pronouncing forgiveness for sins, only the thing that God can do, the Pharisees are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who is this? And then here again in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the same question, who is this? This question always seems to follow after Jesus doing something very unexpected. When he doesn't fit into the narrow categories of how we think he should work. And so this is a fresh opportunity for us to ask that question ourselves. Who is this? And what we discover this Holy Week as we follow Jesus on his journey through Jerusalem and all the way up to the cross on Friday and the empty tomb on Sunday is that this is the one that triumphs through suffering who reveals his strength and his power through weakness and humility. And ultimately, this is the one that brings life and liberation through death and resurrection. You see, these people gathered, masses of people, would have expected that Jesus would take a, a, a very particular turn toward the palace that would have been you know, the most obvious direction to head if he was truly about the people's freedom. He would come in and he would head towards the throne and he would, you know, he, would, he would do his thing, but he doesn't. In fact, he takes a different turn towards the temple to cleanse it, showing that the problem isn't just the evil of Rome. But the problem lies in the sin that is present with the religious as well. And then, he's turning towards the cross. Where are you going, Jesus? 
He's turning toward the cross where our greatest enemies would be defeated, where we would find our, our freedom from, from sin and, and evil and ultimately death. But at that moment, I have to imagine that it appeared like Jesus had just taken a, a completely wrong turn. Not only is he not what we expected, and he looks like nothing like we expected him to look like, he seems to be moving in the wrong direction. And I can imagine that many of you, many of us, are experiencing that very same feeling right now. Jesus, what are you doing? Where are you going? It feels like Jesus has totally ignored your need for help, and he's taken a wrong turn in getting to you. He's taken a wrong turn in bringing to you what you think you need most in this moment. And so... This Palm Sunday, I want to ask two things of you. The first is that I want to ask you to acknowledge that he hears your prayers. None of this, none of these shouts are lost on Jesus. None of these shouts are ignored by Jesus. He, He hears your prayers. He sees the urgency of your predicament that you're in, but you need to know that he, from the very beginning of time, has been on a mission to secure your true freedom and to offer to you the life that you need most. Not the quick and easy answer. That's not what Jesus is about. But the answer that is costly and agonizing. You see, the answer to the shouts, the answer to the prayers, save now, save now with heaven's best, was answered in that wrong turn. It was answered in the sending of God's very own son who was offered up for us as our sin atoning substitute on the cross. And it was answered for us as Jesus was raised in victory and power on the third day to offer us new life and eternity with him. Secondly, what I want to ask you to do is to follow Jesus down that path, down what seems to be a wrong turn. And what we need to remember is that he is not beelining toward the quick fix. He's not beelining towards the throne right now. He's working his way. He's moving toward the cross. And what I want to ask you to do is to follow him down that narrow, less traveled path, the the Via Della Rosa. And so this week, Monday through Friday, what we're going to be doing as a church is creating some avenues to walk that path with Jesus together as best as we possibly can in this season. And what that's going to include are simple Bible reading plans that that correspond with each day uh, during Jesus' final week before the cross. And so tomorrow on Monday, we'll have the readings that correspond with what occurred on that, that final Monday and then Tuesday and so on. So we'd like to invite you to participate in, in that rhythm as well. Also, we're going to be hosting a noon prayer meeting on, on Zoom where we'll be able to digitally connect as best as possible, see each other's faces, hear each other's voice, voices, and ultimately cry out and, and pray to our compassionate, caring God as well. And uh, so Monday through Friday, we're going to have noon prayer meetings, 12 to 1230 on Zoom uh, the link 
to join those gatherings are going to be on our website, on our app, and all of our social media. So be looking for those links posted uh, today or tomorrow. And so let's circle back to that question. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? And my challenge to you is to follow and see. Search him. Watch him. Study him. And follow him down this path in order to answer that question for yourself.